to positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Cocaine. She don't cocaine. lie. She don't lie. She don't. I was trying to come up with a, uh, a song for fentanyl. It's like she kind of lies a little bit. <laughs> don't trust her. <laughs> uh, she tells white lies. Yeah, it's a really bad song about fentanyl. White lies. That's pretty good. Shit. What's up, y'all? If you haven't figured out from the all caps uh, name of the, the the podcast episode, I'm assuming, I decided to do a podcast about cocaine. Cocaine! It might be an ongoing series because I just this turned into a lot of research. I got really curious about it, as one does, right. because I have much personal, on-the-ground, hands-on experience <laughs> with this topic. And... um I decided to start reading about this after I got into a Twitter fight, as so many of my things, you know, start uh, about the fentanyl thing recently. I'm going to get to that in a second. First, I'm going to introduce my co-host this week, Anders Lee. Anders Lee here. Anders Lee here on green on the green stuff. <laughs> on the Kratom. Kratom correspondent, Anders Lee. Right. Um, we should do a podcast just about that, dude. We should. I mean, we might as well. I'm having a lot of fun yeah. reading about this. Honestly, drugs are. I mean, there's a reason. There's there's a reason people like them so much. They're really interesting, right? Narcos season five. Anders Kratom. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, but uh, and that's what's going to happen. They, they want to drive it underground. Some elements. They want to, you know make it fully illegal in the U.S. and it's just going to create a black market and I am going to be forced to return to my uh, my ways as a, a drug kingpin. Yeah. yeah. Climbed his way up through the ranks of the system from being a guy just lounging around in a, you know, a den one day. <laughs> but he had a skill for killing people with a knife from across the room and that's how he became known as um... Uh, Durs Lightning. Durs Lightning, yeah. Blanco Muchacho, that's what they call me. Yeah. Uh, okay, El Scorpion, or some shit, I don't know. So. <laughs> oh, the Norwegian Salmon, that's what I go The by. Norwegian right. Salmon, yeah. <laughs> um, so I was, ta- I was I, this. I started talking about this because, I don't know if, I don't know how widely this, like, memed itself around the internet but it's it sounds like it kind of turned into a thing that people were talking about all over twitter which is uh that there was fentanyl in the coke going around my fucking area my neighborhood ridgewood and bushwick in uh brooklyn and you know there's this thing that people do a habit i developed which is when i hear about this sort of stuff since i have a lot of twitter followers and stuff like that is I'll retweet the message and go, hey, you know, somebody OD'd. Sounds like there's fentanyl in the Coke. 
Uh, so for anyone that knows about this, or anyone that might, you know, be thinking of doing cocaine because you're either addicted to it or just enjoy doing it, you should probably know that there's this potentially deadly substance that they cut it with sometimes in it right now. Seems like a good thing to share, right? And it's really weird because I think this was kind of a successful campaign on some level, whoever started kind of putting the word out about this because it it turned into like a running joke, which is fine. It's a fine way to get the... To, yeah. to, to, to meme the word out about something that people need to know about. Um, and then I got into this weird, like, kind of confrontation, though, with... I'm not really sure what specific, like, faction of, you know, what you, tankies or whatever, like, orthodox Marxists or whatever, but I, I to my, for my money, I would say this seems like a lot of people that do a lot of their learning out of books and uh, not... On the goddamn streets. Uh, as a lot of people were saying to me, you know, why even talk about this? What you should be telling people is not to do cocaine in the first place. Uh, just say no, you know, uh, because it's uh, you're supporting slave labor and all this stuff and the way that it's made, right? Bunch of Ian MacKay's over here. Yeah. <laughs> and that, like, politics of, like, your individual consumption being right. that much of a, a tool to me is it's very like first world, it's very bougie, ironically, for all these like hammer and sickle type people to be talking about it and wielding it that way. Um, and I also think that I disagree with the characterization of this drug as something that is, uh, someone said, like, in hair, they said, like, what was the word? There was like a $10 word, like, fantastically bourgeois right oh okay that was the idea um and i know where that comes from i think i know where it comes from which is you know if you've read about like the 80s with the uh the mid 80s drug bill where they increased the the rate of um penalty for possession of crack cocaine to be a hundred times that of powder cocaine right everyone knows that was racially motivated right Mm mm-hmm Obviously, this is because we know that crack is maybe prevalent, or at least understood. The stereotype and everything is crack is more prevalent in the uh, the black community. Cocaine is all these like Wolf of Wall Street guys that are doing it, right? Um, I don't think that's true. I, I mean, numbers wise, like when that law was enacted, I think still the majority of people doing crack were white, just because there's more white people and. Um, you know, I don't know. It's just a spurious like statistic, but, uh, but also that doesn't mean that like exclusively cocaine is used by like people with a lot of money and that are out to party and stuff like that. I think it's probably also used by the working class and everyone. It's Mm -hmm. just that crack specifically became a thing specific to poor black and brown neighborhoods because there's like less money there and you needed to stretch it you 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 right. come to it that. was a way of not of not dealing with other social problems uh it was not so much the chemical issue itself it was you know the reaganism you know and that was uh rather than deal with that that this was a great sort of boogeyman yeah and i mean like i guess also what i'm saying is that like how do you think people how do you think people in the ghetto came up with the idea to make crack right well, they probably had coke to begin with. So, like, 
the entirety of the argument of uh, you know just say no and all that shit and like oh don't support you know like like you shouldn't be you shouldn't be telling people about safe injection sites and overdose prevention centers because you should actually just be saying don't do drugs is like it's bullshit because you're essentially saying that to working class black and brown people who may for whatever reason end up doing coke like we just know abs- abstinence doesn't work in in any in anything with sex education with drugs right, it's just a, like yeah it's a, it's a reductive sort of uh, argument yeah for uh, a lot of reasons um right. one of them is that it's just as a numbers game you just you can't get the word out you can't assume people aren't going to do something that's life-threatening uh the other thing is it's really fucking addictive so there are just cases of like actual addicts and stuff and i know about a lot about this because i am uh not like you a lot of you people listening to this i i don't i fucking try not to like throw this around all day and make a fucking huge issue out of it but we'll get into it in the episode but like you know if you think that you might not have ever had to work for a living or you know been around black and brown people and stuff like that this just it sounds like a completely uh privileged point of view to me coke is just everywhere right. <laughs> yeah um it's interesting like because we've been talking about this uh with our with our guests but like i i remember i uh was able to get through school without using drugs for you know a lot of kids would do you know drugs to write papers or whatever but then as soon as I, like, uh, graduated, I started having to, like, work du- double shifts. And that is when I started using uh, Adderall. Like, before that, I had never done Adderall. Like, the first time I did it was to get through two double, two doubles in a row. Yeah. Um, so, it's yeah, it's, it's if you're doing a physical job, you need something to an upper, right? It's way more so than just, you know, trying to focus and write something. Yeah, and that's in the history of it, you know? And I mean, like, honestly, I did coke for a long time and had, like, not really much of a problem with it because it was just a thing that you would come upon on, like, special occasions or something like that. But when I developed a real problem with it a couple years ago, I didn't realize until way afterwards that I had a sleep disorder, right? And the sleep disorder was causing me to not become well-rested, and then I was doing, like, burning the candle at both ends shit working in the service industry all day and then doing stand-up at night and i would just get exhausted like and still want to keep you know performing and hanging out which is part of the networking part of comedy and stuff like that mm-hmm. and it just became a, a way to stay awake and just keep like right. moving and stuff like that and it didn't seem like it that much because you know even in the thing like comedy like when you're working you're also kind of partying or whatever but like it's all just yeah. it's all it's all smeared together, you know? Right. It's a blur. Yeah. And I mean, that really just turned it into a, like another level. And uh, that's the, that's how it happens. It starts like that and then it fucking ends, you know, way worse or whatever. So uh, so it's an issue that's like near and dear to my heart, you know? And I've had a lot of friends that have got had had it way, affect them way worse than me, you know? So I don't know. Uh, but for that reason, I decided I wanted to kind of learn like the history of the drug which is i guess as people who study things the way we do and we're into like marxism and systemic thinking and dialectics and stuff like that i guess this doesn't come naturally to a lot of people because the first thing that happened when i started trying to read about this was that i couldn't really find i i figured this is one of the most fucking widely discussed topics like of all time there's got to be like an uh, an effective like 
like just overview what do you call it like a go-to book you know a resource or something that's just like here's everything you need to know about how this happened and they're really i I mean i'm not saying there aren't but i couldn't find them because every time like i asked people about it i would get these stories that are very like individualized that's all about you know this one fucking drug lord or dea agent or one researcher you know, I read a lot of Americans scr- uh, are chasing the scream, which is great, but it is like someone who's just telling the story very individualistically through like the lives of certain people, like Billy Holiday and uh, Harry Ainslinger, and um, and also like the person themselves or whatever. And I, it took me, I was like, I just, this isn't how I understand things like this. This is a product. There has to be a fucking overview, like economic explanation of it. I couldn't find one, but I did find something pretty close, which is a story, uh, a book called Cocaine and Unauthorized Biography by uh, this guy, Streetfield, spelled S-T-R-E-A-T-F-E-I-L-D. It's really weird. Huh. <laughs> His name makes no Down sense. Street. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, someone, a listener suggested. Streetfield smarts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Streetfield Manifesto, you might say, is what this book is called. Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ, that was a terrible joke. So a, a, a listener like tweeted at me about it, and then I tracked down a PDF of it, and I started reading it. And it was like kind of a process. Like I kind of, I kind of grappled with it, because the thing is, this is a thoroughly well-researched and cited book, and it's really long, and I'm only going to get through part of it in this episode today before we get to our guests. Uh, but it's also really annoying because he, he is an unauthorized biography. It's not like an academic text. So the guy just does jokes and stuff through it. And he's like a British guy. So it's just a sense of humor is really dry and it's really annoying because you're like trying to get through the book and he's just like doing this like hacky fucking nineties comedy the whole time. And I had this like, kind of meta experience while I was reading it where I was like this is like first of all this is like reading a podcast it's like annoying it's like what we do you know where like if you're looking for this if you're using this as a resource you're an idiot because you're gonna have to sift through all sorts of like meandering bits and stuff Um, but the second thing is I was like this is like talking to someone on cocaine you know like yeah. He's kind of embodied the drug and like how annoying the way he's telling the story is, which is really interesting because <laughs> in the book, the first thing he does is tell you that he he starts his journey by learning about the Incas in Peru, who basically, you know, were the first to utilize the coca plant where all this comes from. But he learned about it by finding a book in a library, and he keeps going on and on about how boring this book is. And at one point, he says, this book is so fucking boring. I bet the guy that wrote this, this guy Mortimer that he keeps talking about, I bet he says, I bet Mortimer was on cocaine when he wrote this book. So he's having the same experience I'm having reading his book in his book about another book. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Crazy, right? So... For my money, the problem here is individualistic storytelling. Uh, (laughs) Someone needs to come up with a better way to put this across. But I think that cocaine, you know, what it does to your brain, (laughs) maybe it's inevitable that when people think about this stuff, they'll, you know, they'll be sort of uh, like just it's impossible to not make it about yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, 
that's my galaxy brain take on all this. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. It seems like we need a galaxy brain book about it. I mean, there's, we're talking a little bit about Carl Hartz, who I, is, you know, purchased from a scientific angle. Um, but he's also somebody who does the, he dabbles in it. And even that is like, and this kind of goes back to what we're talking about earlier. Like he, he's literally a scientist. So knows exactly how much to take for it to be like fine. Uh, he measures it out and stuff. And he got like, flambéed by the new york post just because he writes in his book about it like yeah it's that personal testimony and then that gets used against you or like they they contacted uh i think columbia where he teaches and they're like did you know that your uh, employee is doing drugs and writing about it um yeah. and yeah it's it's tough to like you know uh synthesize those like the personal and the, the political but that's yeah 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 Sorry, no, that was a coke-like tangent on my part. <laughs> no, this whole episode is just infused with cocaine in podcast form. I mean, there's no. That's what I'm saying. Is like when you get when you start like getting into this and researching it, it's like one of those things. The topic like gets all over you and gets inside of you and stuff like that. Um, yeah, know, not literally necessarily, but like <laughs> the, <laughs> the energy of it, man. It's like a spirit or something. So just be prepared. Uh, yeah. I guess, you know, content warning. I'm going to talk about cocaine a lot. <laughs> this is something that sets you off. <clears throat> um, that guy, though, is uh, pretty interesting. Um, so anyway, yeah, to, so, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just, he, he basically debunked, like, the crack baby myth, uh, which is not, you know, it's unfortunate that that became sort of the justification for uh the war on drugs and like this is like a very heavily a propaganda campaign and we should think you know what you were saying about the slavery uh the supposed slavery that goes into the traffic of cocaine i don't know enough to say definitively that that does not happen but i know enough to be like very skeptical of a claim like that because over the past you know since the 70s or if not before uh, there has been a very concerted effort on the part of American law enforcement, just the American government at large, to come up with propaganda messages to to justify the war on drugs. You know, because this is like a business, right? The the you know, the war itself. There are war profiteers, uh, and they keep it going by inventing myths like this: the crack baby, the jazz musicians who are gonna, you know. <laughs> steal all your food yeah, and, yeah you know raid your farm in 1930 or whatever uh we should be very skeptical of you know you should be careful about what you put in your body you should also be careful about what information you put into your mind about that yeah i mean also with the stuff with like the oh it's made with slavery and stuff like that i mean i wouldn't be surprised to learn how much of that is true it's just that uh it might be yeah. how do you yeah. propose to like solve that problem is it do you literally think like abstaining with your dollar is the way that anyone has ever brought down an industry like that? Right. How do you feel about the, the legal things that use that employ slavery that you consume all the time? Um, you know, I'm not buying it. I think it's a, I think it's an un, unenlightened, you know, almost like teenage fucking take. Like, uh, you know, I, I just, I just, I'm not fucking buying it. I think it's bullshit. I think the, yeah. the idea that if you just told everyone to stop, 
buying the drug, it would go away. No, this needs to be like fucking <laughs> solved. Yeah, on they level. tried that in the eighties. Uh, been in trying the 90s. it. Yeah, it has not worked, right? And they, they they've done the fear thing too, because at first it was like, let's get all these you know celebrities to do a video about how you shouldn't do drugs. Uh, it'll be you know like a feel good thing. Didn't work. I remember. Uh, like I was like five or something and being ushered into a community center where like an evil cigarette monster. We watched a video about one who was like tempting kids yeah. to suck on it. I guess it was like an <laughs> anthropomorphic cigarette that was like, yeah, take a suck. Um, <laughs> that didn't, I mean, maybe I worked on me, but for most people it doesn't work that way. It's personal experience. And it, it's also like the, the stuff ramping up the fear mongering, uh, it doesn't work either because then kids see like, oh, they try a, a little pot. Oh, that wasn't actually that bad. I was made to think that that was, uh, you know, super destructive. So I might as well try all these other drugs and not be careful about it if they're just lying to me. You know? That cigarette thing makes me, when I was a kid, that would make me want to grow up and become a human cigarette monster. Yeah. That, sounds, <laughs> that guy sounds fucking cool. But yeah, right. no, I know exactly what you mean. I mean the first time I, I smoked weed, I was like, oh, they lied about everything. Now I don't trust authority forever, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. of course. Anyway, uh, before we get into the episode, I'm going to do sort of a rapid-fire history of everything that I learned, and I'm going to try to sketch out like somewhat of a materialistic explanation for at least where I got, which is I went from um, the origins of you know humanity to, uh, to about 1910 or so, or 1914, which is when the Harrison Act is signed, which formally sort of is the beginning of outlawing um, cocaine and... Uh, and heroin so like coca and opioids or uh opium products i guess specifically we'll get there so start off with uh peru right so in peru basically what happened is the coca plant grows all over south america but in peru is particularly potent because of the the andes mountains and the way that it's uh it, it's like more potent if it's grown higher up on a mountain or something like that so that's the plant that cocaine is is derived from and basically if you lived especially in, in the high altitudes people just found that chewing the plant actually helped with like altitude sickness and stuff like that mm-hmm. and uh it suppressed your appetite and the way you would chew it was uh you'd get the the leaves and then also like you'd c- carry the leaves in a pouch around your neck and then another pouch that had like crushed up seashells or crushed up lime like the as in lime like the rock because it was particularly oh. abrasive in a way where it created via crushing up the the plants it would form in your saliva like a solution where you would get like a tiny amount of cocaine right obviously they didn't know what they're doing i just know that it did something and it you know so you developed like guys called coqueros which are like uh shaman sort of type figures essentially who are like allowed to use the coca um and people so a lot a lot of people that lived in peru were just uh other villages and stuff but the incas formed like a you know first proto-government type of situation where they occupied on top of like other villages and they called this the Mita system. So when the Incas took over your village, the Incas were like allowed to use more of the cocoa, but it's it, no one really knows. It kind of sounds like it was just widely used wrong everyone because it was just a way to like stave off your hunger and also get a lot of work done and stuff like that. 
Um, yeah. But the Mita system was a system in which if the Incas took over your village, you were allowed to live and they wouldn't kill you and all this stuff. Uh, as long as like you, you sort of lived in like uh, almost like the IDF or something like that. Like, you know, once every 10 years or so you had to go work for them for like a year or something like that. It was like a tax, like a labor tax sort of thing. Um, yeah. maybe people work as like messengers. So one of the first, uh, what do you call it? Like developments, in the society was they had built like roads and stuff like that using communication via these guys that would just run for like days at a time. Wow. They were powered by the fucking coca, right? Pretty cool. Shit. So the Spanish show up and immediately just decimate everyone. You know, they've got like rifles at this point and things like that. Um, They... Well, you know all the fucking stories. It's evil. And they take over all these villages villages and stuff, and they implement the Neo-Mita system. So, like, they take that system, and then they they apply it to the Incas. And now the Incas are basically their slaves, and everyone's, you know, mixed together below them. And what the Spanish did was they used the Incas as slaves to mine for silver, because that was... Uh, they they came in search of gold. There wasn't as much gold as they thought, but there's a fucking ton of silver, and you know they're using this to send back to Spain. And there's also mercury everywhere. So uh, the Incas had actually discovered mercury before all this, but they noticed that it made people sick. So they closed up the mines and they made like a social taboo about it. Uh, but the Spanish didn't give a shit, so they you know worked these people to death and. They said, hey, you know, we're going to create a lottery. You only have to do it for a year. Um, you know, it's, it's random across society. But they fucking worked the shit out of the people that they worked. And while this is all happening, there became sort of like a reverse supply chain. Because in order to keep people working, they noticed that they worked really hard and could, could expand extra hours while they were letting them chew the coca. And, like, there's all these fucking... Uh, conquistadors like writings when they first show up where they're like disgusted by it and they're like these people are fucking chewing on these leaves and it's you know disgusting and cannibalistic and they're Ugh, you know but they notice that it makes people work hard so they keep it going and also in order to keep supply of coca for the workers that are working the mines now they're forcing people to fucking harvest coca right mm-hmm um, and so it creates this supply chain where now you've got like, you got to keep up the coca production so that you can keep up the, the silver and mercury mining. Um, and so right off the bat, you have a system in which, uh, we have a drug being used. I think the way, you know, you can classically understand drugs, which is to, to like, to lull the masses, you know, the opiate of the right. masses, all that shit, right? Yeah. To keep people fucking doped up and working, right? <laughs> so this is, I, I just think it's an interesting point because I just, I don't like antagonizing drug use. I mean, it's something that happens because people, because your experience is fucking miserable, you know, and it, it right. keeps the pain away, you know? No, yeah, it's, it's sort of an, it, in a way, it's sort of a neutral thing, you know, if it has certain connotations then it's uh 
discouraged and other connotations, it's it's encouraged. If it makes workers more productive, you know, I feel like there's a reason that in a lot of workplaces, coffee is readily available. It's one of the only free things you get when you work at a restaurant a lot of the time. Uh, and you, but if you look at, you know, in in England at one point, I believe uh, it was I believe uh, gin was prohibited at the same time, other forms of alcohol were legal. So, and it was purely just a class thing. It was like the, the workers, they drink this stuff, they get rowdy. Uh, we don't like it. Let's enforce this bourgeois morality. However, Sherry, uh, we can drink that cause it's, you know, three times the price or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Funny how it happens. Eh? So yeah. another thing that happens is that you've got like, uh, after, you know, there's, solid colonization and conquistadors and everything there's like the very first enlightenment sort of like french scientists coming down to peru to uh conduct like various experiments about the equator and things like that just all sorts of weird shit yeah (laughs) um they this is how this is how they discovered rubber because it was like coming out of what's called like a really? weeping tree you know there's these tr- that's where that comes from there's, there's a guy said that he was traveling through the through the um through the like jungle there's a tree that just weeps like it just squirts out like the proto material they make rubber out of and he said he used it to cover his notebook like to protect it. So he made like a Whoa. trapper keeper out of it, and then he comes back and they figure out rubber and stuff like that. Damn. Yeah, it's really weird. You know, it's fucking hot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. It's like a hot rubber fetish notebook thing. <laughs> um, look at it. It's so shiny. So it's weird. I mean, stuff like this is so interesting to me because like, I just never think about where stuff comes from that I use like every day, you know? And, mm-hmm. like, you can go down a real wormhole like tr- figuring this shit out. It's cool. So as this happens, like the 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 science of botany is sort of birthed and you've got these scientists first coming down here to uh, you know to catalog all these plants and things like that and send them back to europe and uh it's like a tragic story like it, this one guy spends his entire life you know collecting all these plants and then they he they, they just lose them in the fucking on the thing back and he's like his whole life's ruined it's like, hilarious but he somehow manages to get a cocaine plant back or a coca plant and eventually this all results and this book is like also like i'm flying past stories there's really interesting individual stories about these like scientists and uh all the shit that happens to them it's really funny and interesting so if you're interested in that i'll i don't know i'll put in the show notes i'll try to find a copy of it to link to but um importantly more importantly one thing that happens is eventually after you've got uh, the coca plant sort of cataloged and kept alive somewhere in Europe um, around somewhere in the mid 1800s uh, we start the process of refinement so people start scientists start to use distillation techniques to isolate the active ingredients in things like ca- like uh, like caffeine and coffee or nicotine and tobacco these are called mm-hmm. alkaloids it's a certain type of uh chemical that you can extract out with like alcohol and stuff like that it'll get bind to you know certain chemicals um so nicotine caffeine cocaine that's why it's called that because that's the suffix that you put on an alkaloid right 
comes from the mm. coca plant. Um, let's see. So scientists are starting to say things like the the strongest dose of coca I ever chewed in one day was eighteen drams, absorbing the last ten during the evening, an hour apart from each other. This was. Oh, this is this guy Manta Gaza. Okay, sorry, I'm reading a quote from him. An hour apart from each other. That was only that was the only occasion I experienced coca drunkenness to its very limits. I must confess to having found that pleasure superior to all of their pleasures known in the physical order. I sneered at all of the poor mortals condemned to live in the valley of tears while I carried on the wings of two leaves of coca. <laughs> uh, this is, this is, that's how I felt the first time I tried Kratom. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> like you're, you have wings made out of Kratom leaves? Yeah. Uh, went flying. This is So this is like scientists are now experimenting on themselves with this newly discovered alkaloid, and they're saying things like, I, car- I carried on the wings of two leaves of coca, went flying through the spaces, 77,438 worlds, each more splendid than the one before. An hour later, I was sufficiently calm to write these words with a steady hand. God is unjust because he made man incapable of sustaining the effects of coca lifelong. I would rather live a life of 10 years with coca than one of uh, 100,000, and here I inserted a line of zeros, without it. Um, whatever, I think I butchered that quote, but you see what he's saying. He's, like, exaggerating yeah. and stuff. I'd rather, I would rather live a life of 10 years with coca than a 100 million without it. Crazy. Me too, probably. Like, <laughs> I don't know if anyone wants to live 100 million years with me, some people. Yeah. Doesn't sound very fun. 10 straight years on cocaine would be insane i don't yeah <laughs> oh man can you imagine the crash so it would be death literally <laughs> another thing that happens is like uh this guy this uh was he italian this italian chemist creates this thing called vin mariani so it's like a wine that he puts this newly isolated alkaloid cocaine in right and uh <laughs> it's really funny because he he you know this is around like the era of like t- like elixirs and tonics and stuff like that like um you know old old grifter type shit um this guy's got this new thing called vin mariani which is cocaine wine um and he gets it off the ground and he starts selling it by like marketing it towards celebrities and it takes off because they all love it because no one knows what it is. And uh, and it's just, you know, no one knows what's happening, right? So I'm going to read from a quote here. Celebrities featuring in Mariani's great coca plug include Louis Blairot, the first to fly across the English Channel in 1909, who wrote, I took the precaution of bringing a small flask of Mariani wine along with me, and it was a great help. Its energetic action sustained me during the crossing. Thomas Edison, inventor of the light bulb and the gramophone, was likewise impressed, as was Norwegian writer Henrik Ibsen. Back in France, the uh-huh. Lumiere brothers, Antoine, August, and Louis, who had just invented cinema, commended the wine, as did mathematician Henry Poincare, who wrote cryptically, 20 Mariani equals 100 T. I don't know what that means. Rodin signed his letter, your friend, and August Bartholdi, recently back from building the Statue of Liberty, commented that if he had known about Vin Mariani earlier... It would have attained. It would have attained a height of several hundred meters. So the guy that built the Statue of Liberty said that <laughs> he's like, man, if I wish oh. I had this shit, would have made it. Oh better. right, yeah. <laughs> Damn. 
In England, Jules Verne joked, since a single bottle of Mariani's extraordinary coca wine guarantees a lifetime of 100 years, I shall be obliged to live until the year 2700. Well, I have no objections. H.G. Wells was even more amenable. Instead of writing, he penned two caricatures of himself, one sad and one happy, labeling them before and after Vin Mariani. So he made like a meme. (laughs) Mariani then went further up market, sending a case of wine to the President of the United States, William McKinley, whose secretary wrote to say that the President was already well acquainted with it. So, (laughs) yeah, he was drinking. McKinley was coked out? Yeah, he was drinking coke wine. Yeah. I mean, that was that's probably got what got us into the Spanish-American War because he did not want to do it at first. And then Teddy was like, do it, do it, do it. And he probably was on some Coke wine and was like, fuck it. Let's go for it. Yeah. Let's it's avenge a, that main. It's a, you love starting projects when you're yeah. jacked up. You know? Yeah. The colonization of Cuba was the idea because of cocaine. Uh, he then posted a case to Pope Leo XIII, from whom he received a special papal gold medal, medal honoring his creation. The Pope, uh, meanwhile, it was reported that Ulysses S. Grant, the great American Civil War general, took a teaspoon of Vin Mariani every night before going to bed for the last five months of his life. And before then, Ben? Yeah. <laughs> what? I, I don't know. I mean, if, and if anyone, I, if anyone out there has done coke, you might be able to relate to doing one line and then just passing out. There's something weird and calming about it sometimes. Okay, fair enough. Uh. And that this had been enough to sustain him through the process of writing his memoirs, is what he said. Um, memoirs. Grant's appreciation of Coca gave him something in common with his publisher, Mark Twain. Mark Twain, in one of his uh, like autobiographical stories, wrote about how he wanted to become a Coca dealer at one point, but then <laughs> some other business took off and he forgot about it. So, <laughs> fast forward a little bit to Sigmund Freud, right? Sigmund Freud is probably singularly responsible. Although, like I said, these are individualistic stories, but like so- someone else probably would have come along. But Freud happened to be the guy who was individually responsible for um, popularizing cocaine because mm-hmm. he was trying to make his name for himself as a young medical scientist. And he was working with a guy named Culler on eye surgery, right? And it used to be that when you had surgery on your eye, they just gave you like a piece of wood to bite down on and they were just like all right hold on as hard as you can and they just cut your fucking eye open and it was like unbelievably painful right so freud came upon cocaine distilled from the coca plant and discovered that because you're he didn't realize this was because your eyes have like a mucous membrane but that's why this works it's a numbing Mm -hmm. agent if you apply it topically Mm -hmm. onto your eyeball right so Kohler gets all the credit. Freud's forever obsessed with cocaine because he's pissed off that his associate got all the credit for publicizing this thing while he was like out of town or something. And he just starts taking tons and tons of cocaine and subscribing it to everyone else. And so what kind of happens with that with Sigmund Freud, the reason he really fucked this up is because he wanted to also get like a credit for a use. And he's discovered, he's, he's decided that this like, product that he's now like doing tons of is uh you know the the greatest like cure-all panacea of all time so he became really fixated on the idea that it's a way <clears throat> that cocaine would be a great way to wean people off of morphine um Ooh. which doesn't work and also alcohol i guess at the same time is a thing that people are getting addicted to 
yeah. they were looking at morphine was like an epidemic at that point right yeah uh, someone referred to freud later on in his life as having introduced the third great scourge upon humanity after alcohol and opium um mm. so he had like a friend who he was treating uh who had like nerve pain because he had like an accident where he fucked up one of his arms and the guy who got addicted to morphine, so he started giving him cocaine, and then he didn't realize that the guy was also taking the morphine while he was taking the cocaine. He essentially created like the first like addict uh, who took like speedballs all day. Um, and so all of this is happening, and there's like there's a, <clears throat> there's another guy. Um, his name's Osier. He was one of the founders of like Johns Hopkins, like the first, what is that, like school of surgery. Um, yeah. This guy died. <laughs> this is a really weird story. He died, and he when he died, he donated his library to uh, whatever, to, you know, some fucking place. And he left a note and said, there's a, there's like a, like a diary with like a key to open the diary in my library i don't want anyone to open it until 1989 <laughs> just like you know 100 oh, years later what? at this point oh it was 100 okay i guess that was it i think it was like cuz it was 100 years later so somebody opened it because like how could you not open it and uh in it was a diary of his relationship with this other guy named halstead who they both had gotten hooked on uh they just both they both had gotten hooked on like tons of coke while experimenting on themselves and uh, Halstead was like the guy who invented using, or he came up, he he was the first guy to say you should use rubber gloves when you're doing sur- surgery. So there's like big, you know, like names in surgery uh, or in the history of medicine. <clears throat> they came up with the idea of local nerve blocking anesthesia. So Freud is just throwing cocaine on people's like eyes and stuff like that and numbing them. These people are the first that figured out that you could like inject it under the skin into the nerves that blocks the entire nerve so you can operate on like a part of someone's body which eventually turned into like novocaine and stuff like that so when you go to the dentist um but in the in the diary they they discover you know that these these people have uh, all turned themselves into like just raving addicts and it's weird because he wanted them not to know that until a hundred years later, which is crazy because this was the key to understanding that like this drug that was being wildly popularized was actually really bad for you and addictive. He just thought he didn't want his friends to be embarrassed because they're all like high society doctors and shit like that. And he didn't want mm-hmm. everyone's reputation to be tarnished. So yeah. completely insane. <laughs> um, eventually <clears throat> somebody figured out that there's this magazine this like periodical that all these surgeons and doctors are reading called the therapeutic gazette that was popularizing cocaine, right? It's almost single-handedly. Well, the therapeutic gazette is run by the park Davis pharmaceutical company, which was manufacturing and selling cocaine. So Freud is like partially responsible, but mostly guess what? It's a bigger like institutional problem, right? Right. This one company, like a Sackler type thing. They were pushing it and they were selling it to doctors through, you know, like faux medical journals um, because they were profiting off of it. 
something else that's kind of interesting is that, like Sherlock Holmes, the early Sherlock Holmes stories, he's doing tons of coke if you go back and read them. And hmm. uh, was and the, it? Is that what snuffbox meant? Maybe, I always wondered that. I that sounds that like it might be. Cocaine? Yeah, because that was what was, say, my snuffbox. I think so because uh, okay. that's what it was called when you would snort it early on. I could be wrong. Right. They also think like Jekyll and Hyde. That story was based on coke because the guy who wrote it got prescribed coke because he had like some fucking problem. Um, Sherlock Holmes is really interesting because like in the beginning when Arthur Conan Doyle was writing Sherlock Holmes, he uh, it was when. It was before any negative like shit had been written about Coke. It was still like this wonder cure tonic thing or whatever. And then later on, everything changes and like rewrites him as an addict. Apparently, it's really interesting. Um, so then, basically, what starts to happen after this is all of this like early glory starts to come crashing down, and people start to realize that you know cocaine can make people really sick and like all these all this stuff that these doctors have been covering up starts to become kind of uncovered so like when when freud and kohler were were working with cocaine i mean they were doing shit like they like if a woman had like you know gynecological problems they had to do with surgery they would just like shove a bunch of coke up your pussy and then like <laughs> woman would fucking die on the operating table because they didn't understand mucous membranes you know and how it absorb at different rates and stuff like that yeah so they're covering all this shit up and uh, yeah i mean as we've discussed on the podcast before that's the reason james garfield kicked it is because his doctor was shoving fudge and steak up his ass in the past people loved to shove things that they shouldn't up their various holes and thank god for medical science you know yeah now we know what you can shove up there Uh, um (laughs) So, where this gets kind of like interesting and starts to take a turn is that um, while this is happening, like basically the problem with manufacturing cocaine, it's not that popular because uh, if you you can't ship the coca leaves from South America to Europe or to North America, they get moldy and they die. So this fucking chemist goes down there and he figures out. Like, there's got to be a way to refine this, like, here, and then ship the refined product. And he, like, has a experiment in his, uh, you know, hotel room where he's using, like, a copper pot still you'd make, like, liquor with. And he fucking almost sets his hotel room on fire, and he has to throw it out the window and shit, and all this crazy stuff happens. All these experiments, and then eventually he finally figures out how to make, like, the coca paste that you then, uh, you know, basically refine cocaine from. So if you've ever seen, like, Narcos or whatever, that, that shit. Mm-hmm. Um, this changes everything because it's reduced the size down to, like, a tiny little thing you can transport, and suddenly you've got industry, you know, um, competing, right? And for a second, this looks like it's going to benefit, like, the, the burgeoning governments of Peru and Bolivia and Colombia and all these places that are, you know, colonized, but... Maybe you could at least bring some wealth into the place. Well, the Dutch come into the picture and they figure out a Uh. way to fucking steal coca plants and then transport them and find, like, where in their colonies they can refine them. And it takes off. Of course. The big one is in Java, like Indonesia. 
And uh, <laughs> so then all of a sudden they're man- manufacturing tons of cocaine. Germany sort of figures out how to refine too. And you've got this like whole fucking international competition happening. And uh, this results in this industry in, that's wildly unregulated in the United States where you can uh, you can sell, you know, <laughs> like just cocaine, just aqueous solution cocaine. It's like a cocaine potion in like a Walgreens at this point in America. And then you've also got Coca-Cola that pops up, which is the, the reason that happened is because a guy made a knockoff of the Vin Mariani, the wine in Atlanta, but then Atlanta outlawed alcohol. And so he needed a way to sell it. So he just came up with like this soda, and at first it was flat, and then you fucking add soda water to it, and yada yada yada. But the point was that it had cocaine in it, but it was still like a lower dose than, you know, the stuff that the doctors are using on themselves and the stuff that you would get at the drugstore. And um, it's just all over the place at this point, right? Mm-hmm. But then the thing that happens is in around 1914. All of this is happening, and people are starting to realize that there's like a problem, and then there's like prohibitionist type people that are saying, you know, this needs to be uh, done away with. It's a scourge upon humanity, and all this sort of stuff. And so, this piece of legislation called the 1914 Harrison Act is drawn up, and it's essentially a tax. Like it starts off as a tax. This this is turned into the basis of the drug war, and it later on turned into, a, I think, a reason to actually lock somebody up but it starts off as like we just want to tax all this shit that's coming in from like indonesia and china and stuff like that and um southern states were not on board with it because uh you know they saw it as like a state's rights issue i guess or at least that's what that guy carl uh, what's his face was talking about um early the what he thought um I don't oh, know. right right i'm still kind of putting all this together so if i'm wrong and you're a fucking expert in this you know email us i don't give a shit but um, but basically, this all culminates in uh, the way to sell the 1914 Harrison Act to southern states who did not want to sign on because they thought it violated their state's rights was with the specter of a new racist, scary image, which is the uh, the Negro cocaine fiend, right? So all these urban legends started popping up about this black men just being like hopped up on coke and then like unkillable. Like cops would be saying, I shot him straight through the heart and he still fucking, you know, beat me to half to death or whatever. And there were also like a lot of really racist uh, undercover cops going and infiltrating, you know, Chinese like opium dealers and stuff like that and then reporting back after you know, having done all the opium and fucked all their women and shit like that, and then saying, <laughs> these people are goddamn savages, you know? And they're, yeah. <laughs> they're trying to take over our country with their opium by doping everyone up or whatever. And so all this sort of shit is happening. And uh, this is like where the book American or Chasing the Scream sort of starts to take off because this leads eventually to this guy, Harry Ainslinger, who basically inherits... Um this office commissioner of the U S treasury's federal bureau on narcotics after the end of prohibition. So after the end of prohibition, there's still a bunch of people in like the newly sort of formed FBI who still, all they want to do is go catch, you know, drug dealers, but, or bootleggers, but bootleggers are no longer a thing because you legalized the drug. Right. 
Um, this yeah. this guy was also uh, he got the job because he was I think in laws with a a melon from like the you know famous rich family like Carnegie Mellon. Um, and what's crazy about all this is that up to this point, medical science was starting to come come into sort of agreement that addicts were like patients and that, um. You know, all the stuff that we know today that you're considered like a crazy Larry Krashner person for, for talking about. The, the the idea that, you know, these people should be treated as like victims of a fucking disease, uh, you know, rather than right. this being like a personal issue. issue, not a legal one. Yeah. But Harry Ainslinger was a social Darwinist and he, you know, he per- preferred to cite like just these evil ass doctors who like, one of them, one of his favorite doctors just basically said that he thought 70 percent of hum- humans should be cold from the herd because they were weak willed and stuff like that. And if you're weak enough to become a fucking addict, then uh, you deserve to die. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, one thing I fucking went past that I wanted to, to point out that I thought was really interesting was. When the when the Negro cocaine fiend thing was happening, when all these like cops were telling these uh, sort of exaggerated stories about having to put down, you know, angry black men who were, you know, ramped up on cocaine and jazz music and all that shit. This is when nationwide police started switching from thirty two caliber caliber bullets to thirty eight, which was what it stayed at for a long time, and then I think it went up from there. Ooh. But that was enough to create like a nationwide trend in police, which are not, you know, that's not a federal like like uh, institution. It's state by state. So it was like all across the South, there was just like, an agreement like, oh, we need to switch to 38. Which what, is, what was the difference? What did it do? It's a bigger bullet. They thought that 32 uh, okay. caliber bullets were, you know, too weak to bring down a, a black man that was like uh, jacked okay. up on cocaine because he could. He you fucking kill you even if you put twenty bullets in him. That sort of thing persists right. today, where they sh- they fill a guy full of fucking nineteen shots because they think he's got a gun in his hand or whatever, you know. Um, right. and that was literally Derek Chauvin's justification before he was charged. Like right after he killed George Floyd, his his justification to one of the bystanders was like, "He's a big guy. I had to put you know it was he's hard to get under control and he was on drugs." As if that somehow justifies using lethal force yeah 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 it's fucking crazy you know and it's all still persists today so that's basically where i got i mean it's weird because i sat down to like kind of sketch this out and to get into like escobar and latin america and stuff like that to try to come back to this thing that people were talking about with like oh the, the slavery in south america and stuff like that but there's just so much information here but i only got all the way here because i mean it was really an interesting story how it sprang from medical science and then immediately was sort of, you know, galvanized and catalyzed by capitalism Mm -hmm. and came back around through the framework of the police state that we now still live with. And it's been magnified to an insane degree. And we know all this stuff. We know, you know, (laughs) that, uh, that this is a medical issue that's being treated by, you know, a police state. And they fucking said it back then. Billie Holiday herself, the famous jazz singer, talked about it and, uh, you know, eventually died and said all this crazy shit on her deathbed about it. And uh, it's a goddamn tragedy. 
Yeah. So I think maybe I might just have to do another episode about this when I get sort of through the through both of these books and string all the stuff together. But um, I don't know. I thought that shit was interesting. Yeah. Stay tuned, loyal listener. Um, more Coke info. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. So next, we'll talk to Ryan Carson from um, No Od New York organization that's working to create uh, overdose prevention centers and fight the goddamn government for it. Hell yeah. Okay, we are now joined by Ryan Carson from No ODNY. Ryan, welcome to the show. What's up, man? Yo, thank you so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I gotta ask, is that intentionally uh, supposed to spell nude? Uh, yeah, you know, it definitely it definitely came up when we were like brainstorming a name. You know, we're uh, doing a partnership with uh, Shea Stadium Brooklyn that's going to be coming up called Nude Fest. Nice. Uh, so uh, we're gonna have uh, we're gonna have some performers, some bands, and shit like that. Um, and yeah, so look out for Nude Fest. It's going to be uh, June 22nd. It's a uh, Tuesday evening. Cool. So Shea Stadium is, although is no longer a physical place, but is uh, sort of a uh, still exists. Yeah, it does still exist. I mean, Great. so um, the folks that have been kind of promoting for the last couple of years, uh, they're actually going to exist again. They're in the middle of uh, getting a new space. So um, they're going to cool. be relaunching. So going to be able to enjoy shows from them, um, you know, coming up, I think, like maybe as soon as September, honestly. They're getting uh, awesome. pretty close to re- relaunching. You're talking uh, Shea Stadium, the DIY space, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, not, the, not where the Mets here. play. That's oh, important to uh, <laughs> distinguish, I'm realizing now, yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not uh, not City Field, no, or, uh, you know, <laughs> The, the the former Shea Stadium. Uh, right, right. Both don't exist, but one is coming back. Well, I, I, I watched a lot of cool shows at Shea Stadium, the venue, while it was around, so I'm very happy to hear that. But I was excited for a minute because I thought maybe the Mets were really concerned with, like, Narcan training or something. Yeah, or that I, they were I, kicking out City, City Group from their uh, name and they're going back to, yeah. Yeah. There was a period of time where I was actually trying to pursue getting Mr. Met at a <laughs> press conference. Uh, you know, he's a real family man. Um, so I think, you know, I think that it would have been uh, would have been the right way to go. What if you got- he does have a bit bad habit that he doesn't like to yeah, get attention to. But that's, he's very that's much why he that. looks so angry. What about cocaine? Keith Hernandez. Did he play for the Mets? I don't know shit about uh, sports. Who who is? I don't, I don't know. Did Keith Hernandez? I, I honestly don't know. I don't know either. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm actually unfortunately a Red Sox fan. You know, so it's, <laughs> Ooh, okay. He was on the Mets, yeah. Well, don't worry. I'm, I I I was an Astros fan, so there's no. My oh well, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, it's cheaters, you know, <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> Twins. So, um, uh, well, yeah. I mean, know. entirely irrelevant. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, why don't as, you? As usual. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a good Andrews Lee segue. Speaking of uh, striking out, no, that's not good. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why don't you just tell us about no? Yeah, you know what? You know what's uh, a big been a big problem in the legal system is they're trying to play baseball with three strikes, you're out. And ah, uh, you know that was actually pretty good, Andrews. Thank I'll give you. you that yeah, one. Yeah. I'll give you that one, man. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. They they don't. Uh, allow people to uh, get not enough people are hitting home runs in life uh, and they're not getting home safe because they get swooped up 
by the authorities and they don't get the help they need. Yeah. 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 I mean, so, you know, three strikes you're out kind of uh, ties into, you know, how Joe Biden actually plays into this whole thing. So I guess kind of an overview of the campaign is, you know, um, so we launched No ODNY on June 1st. Um, So we're um, a coalition of organizations um, kind of from uh, throughout the state and also nationally. So um, it's uh, Vocal New York, which a lot of folks are probably familiar with. Um, They do a lot of really great harm reduction advocacy, Um, Students for Sensible Drug Policy and um, Drug Policy Alliance. And so um, those are kind of the key players in this organizing effort. But um, essentially, over um, the course of the month of July, I'm going to walk over the state of New York. So um, on July 1st, we're doing an introductory press conference on the steps of City Hall. Um, It's going to be a bunch of electeds, um, and we're going to be, from there, walking from New York City to Buffalo um, to put pressure on Governor Cuomo to, um, you know, create um, overdose prevention centers in New York State, So, uh, which is something that he promised that he was going to do in 2018, um, and then kind of uh, was a little chicken shit about. So um, we're going to basically... Um, kind of hold his ass to the fire on this and make sure that, uh, you know, we finally get this thing done. But, you know, Joe Biden also kind of has a role to play in this. And, you know, he was, uh, you know, a big guy on the drug war himself. And so, um, you know, we basically need kind of two things to happen. Um, We need Governor Cuomo to say that he's going to create these overdose prevention centers, which are already totally ready to go is kind of the key thing to know here. In 2018, he promised um, a coalition of organizations led by Vocal and Housing Works that he was going to create these spaces. And so um, there was also this study that was done by um, city council to see if they were going to be effective and if they um, could be run by the city. And so, yeah, they were totally ready to go. And there would also be one in Ithaca, New York as well. So that is, um, they're totally ready to go. It's basically like a light switch that needs to happen. But mm-hmm. what the governor is doing is he's saying that, you know, because of this lawsuit that happened in Philadelphia um, last year that about opening one of these sites in Philadelphia, right. um, that, you know, the federal government doesn't support it. Um, but, you know, Joe Biden, all he has to do is basically just tell the Department of Justice to drop that case and then we're totally ready to go and we're off and running. So it's kind of like a two tiered thing. But the governor, you know, he's uh, he, he likes to flex his relationship with Joe Biden. Um, he's also, you know, um, he could just kind of press this. I mean, you know, we're seeing um, kind of you know, the maybe it looks like the deadliest year for opioids on record um, in the U.S. during the pandemic. So, um, you know, he definitely needs to come forward and do it. And, you know, his son's a user himself. So, um, you know, this is obviously something that is uh, close to Joe Biden's heart. And he's been saying that he wants to, you know, right the wrongs from what he did during uh, the drug war. I didn't even and think is about that, that. Uh, the thing in Philadelphia, is that all it all related to the safe injection site that was supposed to be built in Kensington? Or is that yeah, yeah. So um, they were trying to open a site there. Um, and basically what ended up happening was the uh, Trump Department of Justice stepped in and they were um, going after the statute, which is called the Crack House Law, um, which basically forbids um, sites where people go to use drugs um, in numbers, basically. I mean, that's the really short and simple version of it. Um, but yeah, so they stepped in and there's been a lawsuit, a counter lawsuit. There's now an open case. And so the Department of Justice can just completely make it go away if they want to right yeah we just watched uh philly da the docuseries about uh the krasner administration and his like time in power and that was a big issue there there's like a lot of people who in their neighborhood there's a lot of you know crime and a lot of drug use and they have kids seeing needles and stuff and that it's for some reason it just doesn't compute that like that can all go away if you just put a safe injection site there and you don't have to see any of that stuff but that's still like a massive political hurdle uh do you think that there is like hope though in the future that 
in Philly and elsewhere that we can build more of these things? Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, it's it's interesting, you know. I mean, when I'm uh, when I'm lobbying um, politicians in New York State about this and stuff, they're always saying, "Well, you know, what about the NIMBYs in my neighborhood, the not my backyard folks that are saying, you know, well, I I don't want one of these sites in my neighborhood." But you know, those those NIMBYs are also the same people that are like you're saying, Anders, that are like complaining about you know people that are on the street using. And so this is a way to um, get those people into a safe space. And I mean, you know, one of the other things that I hear all the time is that, you know, there's, um, you know, people say to me like, oh, well, we don't really have the science about how these places are going to work. But, you know, these places exist in over 100 cities across the, the entire world, um, not in America yet, but, you know, nobody's ever overdosed there. And in places like Vancouver, we've seen that there's been a 30% decrease in overdoses um, in the surrounding area around their site, which is called Insight Onsite. Um, and a lot of people end up, you know, getting the rehabilitation services that they need. You know, there's also um, a decrease in things like fentanyl in the surrounding area because people know that, you know, these drugs are going to be tested. Um, so it's definitely a win-win for the community. And it definitely is something that, you know, I, I think that we desperately, desperately need in New York with kind of the uptick that we've had. I mean, in August of 2019 to August 2020, we had 88,000 people OD in America, um, which, you know, was up from 70,000 the year before. So, I mean, it's been an unbelievably devastating year for people. And we just need to get people the care that they need, frankly. Do you know but, why there was an uptick? I've heard people try to explain this in terms of like COVID. Well, so, I mean, people are definitely isolated, you know, I mean, like people, um, I know, I know personally, a lot of people in my life that relapsed um, and, you know, people were definitely dealing with real stress and were definitely, you know, just stuck inside and were like alone with their own thoughts. And, um, you know, I definitely like, I talked to somebody who was a public school teacher in Binghamton, New York recently, who relapsed just because she knew it was in her building. She was incredibly distressed for about six months and she knew that there was a dealer in her building and she eventually just relapsed. And so I think that that's kind of... Uh, common for a lot of people. And, you know, the other thing is that there's just so much fentanyl now. I mean, there's fentanyl and cocaine in New York City now and like record, record numbers. So I think that, you know, we just need to be really cautious about what is in these th in um, in these doses that people are taking, well, particularly with heroin. It's 50 percent of people who die of a heroin overdose is because there's fentanyl in there. Well, I, that's what I'm kind of curious about. This is kind of what sparked uh, the idea to even talk about this really in my life recently is uh i i don't seem to have an answer for why like what is why is why are people putting fentanyl in coke and heroin what is the purpose of that what does it do does it pad it there out was a, there was a song about it you, you put the fent in the coke and then you mix them you know yeah the lovable reggae song that we all know yeah yeah <laughs> And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's basically that it's just getting light. I mean, the, the street term is it gets stepped on, you know, basically, like, if you're getting so much of, you know, whatever drug it is that you're trying to deal, you're trying to deal as little of that drug as possible. And so you're going to start cutting it with other things. Yeah, you're spreading and it. And so, like, you know, in five years ago um, in cocaine in New York City, and these are the NYPD numbers, five years ago, there was only 2% um, of cocaine in New York actually had fent in it. Um, and now it's um, up to 8%. So nearly one in 10 bags of Coke that you could be buying in New York City now could have fentanyl in it. And it only takes two milligrams of fentanyl to kill you. I mean, it's 50% more uh, deadly than morphine. So, you know, it's it's just a way of people being able to pad it out to be able to make more money over time. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's frankly super fucked up, you know, I mean, I, if, right. I, I think that like the fact that it's like 
incredible people are starting to become aware of this is really good but you know people need to be really concerned about you know how to test their bag um and also you know now i think that we're seeing it happen kind of in record numbers because people are going out for the first time in new york city right people are going out they're trying to party people are trying to have a good time and you know people just need to be conscious about what that means for them yeah. Is there some other, and I mean this seriously, like if there are drug dealers out there who, who are penny pinchers, like, is there some other safe thing that they can cut Coke with? Cause you're killing your customers, right? Can't they just use like, I don't know, salt or baking soda, you know, used to be the thing that people went for. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's so many different, I mean, the thing that if you're, if you're using cocaine in New York, I think for like a long time now, it's then uh you know you're you're usually not like using that much cocaine you're usually getting other types of uppers <laughs> in there you're getting other types of stuff you know you're getting a uh, baking soda you might end up with like muffins coming out of your nose or whatever but i think that like you know we we it's really a, it's like do a, need ch- to a child's like... volcano science experiment coming out of your <laughs> exactly yeah yeah <laughs> and so yeah i mean i i think you know drug dealers maybe should take it upon themselves to uh you know just um actually test this stuff you know i mean if you go on to like dance safe's website um you can just buy fentanyl testing strips for like a dollar i mean they're pretty cheap and you know i think that if you're like lower down on the totem pole of like your local drug dealer maybe you should just be checking it out um because i mean kind of what we saw over that last holiday weekend um was pretty terrifying and i think most cocaine users don't really know that there might be fent in there whereas like if you're if you're a heroin user the chances are you're probably pretty aware that there is fentanyl in what you might be buying. Whereas like your average, like cocaine user, and especially people are going out for the first time and partying, maybe haven't used cocaine in a while. um, Those people definitely aren't thinking about it. I don't think. Mm. Yeah. And I'm curious about, so New York state, like, do you feel like this is possibly something that Cuomo is keeping in his back pocket, kind of like legal marijuana, you know, for like when the other shoe drops on, I guess the, centipede of shoes on his you know many many scandals is he just like saving this for when he gets in trouble again he can just the the reason why he did this in the first place i mean so in 2018 when he promised he was going to do it it was because cynthia nixon was primarying him and so i think that that's like you know kind of he basically just completely backed off as soon as that primary was over and hasn't communicated to any of the groups that he promised these facilities to um so you know i think like I mean, the guy's already scandalized about the Department of Health. That's one of the reasons why we want to do this campaign in the first place is, you know, he ordered the Department of Health to cover up all these old people that he killed in these, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in these nursing homes. And so, you know, it's he's already scandalized by the Department of Health. And he did that so that he could get a book deal, basically. I mean, the guy's a fuck. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, he's he's maybe holding on to it in his back pocket. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely insane at this point with the like completely record numbers that we're seeing that he's not taking action because, you know, he would be lauded as a hero. I mean, if he wants to, you know, flex his like progressive, like bona fides or whatever, you know, he, all he'd have to do is just like flip the light switch and, you know, get a, get a really great, like New York or Atlantic story about him or something. I bet if when the, uh, nursing home investigation comes through, he's going to be like, they would, they were doing Coke at elsewhere. There was fat in their Coke. Yeah, we got to create these systems. We're gonna we're gonna put a we're gonna put an overdose prevention c- c- center in every single uh, nursing home yeah. around the city of New York. You know, um, so yeah, which you know, but might not be a bad idea. You know, I mean, uh, you could right. you could bring in two unlikely allies. You could bring in your drug users. You could bring in folks that are uh, you know uh, that are old folks that uh, you know are looking for company. You know, right? Yeah. Can you? Uh, I mean, speaking of like 
the absurdity of uh you know old folks blasting rails that's a fun image but like can you tell me in your experience you know organizing in this field about the uh the demographics of people that use coke because i it's interesting to me it's been kind of like debated uh it's always portrayed as this party drug and people would go as far as to say it's like bougie or something like that but it's also incredibly addictive and then there's also crack which is you know this the the same drug sold in a more addictive fashion um what do you think about that do you think this is i mean is this just a a party drug or is there you know is there something else going on here with like I guess the reason I'm asking this is because a lot of people would dismiss it and go, well, it's just fucking hipsters. Let them fucking die. Let them overdose or whatever. I don't find that to be the case in my life, because especially because I work in restaurants and, you know, half the fucking yeah. industry is fueled on the goddamn drug. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that, though? I mean, I'm open to being wrong about this. I mean, it's a, I mean, it's definitely like a racialized issue for sure. I mean, you know, like crack, like the like the crack house law and stuff, which is what we're pushing back against to get overdose prevention centers in New York. You know, I mean, it, it's definitely, you know, I mean, it's entirely that it's used to just like police black and brown people. You know, I mean, that's entirely what it is. Whereas, you know, cocaine, particularly in the 80s, which is when like, you know, I feel like this kind of like split happened with cracking cocaine. Like, you know, people who were using cocaine were people who were voting for fucking Reagan, you know, I mean, like, right. It's so, you know, which ties it all back to like Joe Biden too. I mean, the crack house law has his fucking fingerprints all fucking over it. And, you know, I definitely think it's super racialized. And like, I totally agree with you, Jake. I mean, like, you know, as somebody who's worked in restaurants myself, you know, I mean, like I like, you know, I don't think I've ever been around like a like chef in like New York city that like isn't using cocaine, you know? Um, So it's it's at the very least an in joke in the industry that it's just around. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 And And I mean, you know, I, I think like whenever anybody goes back to the bar afterwards, you know, there's always like somebody who is using. And so, it's definitely a party drug, but I also think like it, like a lot of people use it to get things done. I mean, I don't yeah. know how like dissimilar it is necessarily from even something like Adderall, you know, where like people are popping that to just get things done around their apartment, honestly. And right. like, you know, I mean, I, and for me, I think that's why it's really important to decriminalize all drugs because like, you know, nobody should be going to jail just because of like what it is that they're like putting into their bodies. You know, I, I definitely like, you know, I think we have to treat it like a public health issue, which is kind of exactly what it is. You know, if people are dying in such massive numbers, we need to like take steps to keep people alive, frankly. And that's exactly what things like overdose prevention centers or safe injection facilities do. Well, I guess to me, what it seems like is that, um, you know, cocaine is kind of a party drug, but in the United States, we have a service economy. And so, yo, yeah, that's a really good point. A lot of us, our job is to throw the fucking party every night, you know, and it's not, that's a working class job. I mean, being in the fucking service sector in this country. So I think it's, partially like why it's out there so much and why at least i've run into it in my experience but i guess my other question about this is uh you know to kind of just upend the entire debate about that does narcan and fentanyl strips and things like that does all this stuff does this work with crack at all well, so Narcan, like, it, like explicitly, like, reverses, uh, you know, the overdose for, like, heroin. So it's, like, actually, like, made in oh, order that's to sorry, do that's that. Oh, sorry, that's heroin, yeah. Yeah, but, like, so, fe- like, fentanyl testing strips, I mean, it's 
fentanyl's popping up in everything. So I mean, like if you're if you're going out, if you're using, especially if you're not somebody who's like you know somebody who uses regularly, you know, I mean, the like couple bucks that you're going to drop to get a couple of fentanyl testing strips, I mean, could save your life. And mm. if, I think people who are going out or partying, especially now that like shows are reopening in New York, I think that like you know, there are going to be like festivals at the end of the summer and stuff like that. People should just kind of have it on them. Um, and, you know, I think that like, ultimately, you know, I, I think that we just need to do everything that we can to um, just get people to know what it is that they might be putting into their body. And, you know, I think that opening things like overdose prevention centers where people will just kind of know in their head, like, oh, I'm going to go use drugs tonight. I should go make sure that my bag is good to go beforehand, you know, whether yeah. it's, uh, you know, whether they're going to be going out or they want to use on site. I think that people just need to know what it is that they're getting themselves in for, because I mean, the uptick that we're seeing in fentanyl is absolutely insane right now. And it only takes two milligrams of fentanyl to kill the average person. So um, mm. not very much at all. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and I think that you're totally right. I mean, about cocaine oftentimes actually being a working class drug at this point. So, um, yeah, I mean, we just need to do kind of try everything that we possibly can to keep people alive, you know. My, I guess right. the reason I have that personal agenda is just because I've been fighting with people on Twitter about this stuff, and I think it's interesting, and I also think that that's like a an angle that's um, being used and will probably be cynically used by our enemies to dismiss this sort of stuff. So sure. I guess I'm just curious about the ways in which this sort of stuff, like uh, you know, OD centers and, and like safe injection and all this this entire philosophy of uh, you know drug treatment is useful to you know poor black and brown neighborhoods pitch me that this is not just enabling brooklyn hipsters to go get fucked up you know <laughs> oh for sure i mean if you if you just look at like the cdc's data about who it is that's like dying of overdoses right now you know it's it's definitely the reason why people care about it is because it's white middle class kids that are dying now but i mean it this has been a problem for so long i mean if you were to take like the bronx for example if you just take the bronx out as its own state has the second highest od rate in um, the country so i mean that's that just tells you everything that you need to know about the problem right there i mean like i definitely like understand and i hear this from like black elected officials when we're like when we're lobbying on this issue for sure that they're like well you know this is uh you know the only reason why people care about this now is because it's like upper middle class white kids that are dying which you know is definitely true and i mean like yeah fucking course but i mean i think that like where these centers are primarily going to help people are particularly in black and brown uh neighborhoods and on top of that you know i mean for for me i mean we need to do everything that we can to take away like the NYPD's ability to police those neighborhoods and we need to give people a safe space to use. Right. I mean, one of the things that I've heard from a lot of drug advocates around the country is as we're legalizing marijuana, it's giving the police less of a reason to stop people or to kick in people's doors because they don't smell pot, you know? Right, right, right. And so the, mo the more and more that we can do in order to protect those people, you know, the better. But like, you know, and I totally, and I definitely hear it all the time. I mean, about like, you know, that's mostly like white hipster that are dying and stuff like that but you know i mean a life is a life is a life but at the same time you know these centers i mean if you just look at what the overdose data is like it's basically you know it's the poorest areas that are particularly black and brown neighborhoods that are getting the like raw steel out of all of this yeah and the bronx that's where the yankees play not the mets that's interesting <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm I know. Kidding. I mean, uh, do the Yankees even have a mascot? I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think so. It's like an evil guy with a top hat or something. I don't really understand. I, don't, I haven't watched it's a baseball. monocle, yeah. yeah. Now it's just sad A-Rod, I think. <laughs> uh, but I'm curious, like, from your time in the, like, legalization movement, um, and and now I've, I feel like this is it's more than just a legalization movement, but at least, you know, 10, 15 years ago when I was sort of starting to get involved in politics and, you know, thinking more radically, it was like uh, for every sort of progressive socialist like me, there were like two libertarians who were basically like all drugs should be legalized. No one should be put in jail, full bodily autonomy. But if you're addicted, you're on your own. Like there are no help uh, for anybody, no social investment. Uh, no, you know, investment in safe injection sites are like that. Maybe the Koch brothers would do a privatized safe injection site. The Koch brothers. Oklahoma or something. Yeah, the, right. Coke, yeah, I love yeah. those guys. <laughs> <laughs> but has ha, have you seen that start to shift uh, in, the, yeah, in the movement? For sure, for sure. I mean, like, I was, I was actually just talking with, like, another advocate on the phone, like, on, like, Thursday, um, who was uh, lobbying on this in Nevada, where they also have like a bill on the table for um, safe injection facilities or overdose pre- prevention centers. And so like the big thing with that is like, you know, the Koch brothers and Americans for Prosperity and stuff like that are starting to circle around that. I mean, you know, they definitely don't believe in shit like universal care that like, you know, yeah. socialists like me believes in. But like they definitely are coming around to the idea that like, OK, well, if we need to decriminalize all drugs, then, you know, we need also need to have this because like, you know, I mean, you know, cynically, I definitely think like, you know, the Koch brothers, you know, would love to be able to just like sell stuff like heroin to people if they can. Um, But, you know, I think that, you know, we we're definitely seeing kind of libertarians shift on this. And like, you know, like Americans for Prosperity, you know, who are are very uh, libertarian, right, you know, are like spending money on pushing overdose prevention center legislation across the country. So it's definitely it's definitely starting to change. And, you know, I think that like with like the libertarian right or whatever, you know, those those are the upper middle class white kids, right? Right. Or or even richer. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, they're they're definitely seeing because it's like their friends that are dying. Um, So, you know, they're they're definitely definitely uh like getting involved and you know ultimately i think that like you know this is it's people like the like the fucking sackler family and stuff like that that peddled like oxys for years saying that it was non-addictive and now it's such a wide-ranging issue that virtually everybody knows somebody who's died from this shit so you know they're they're people are from all over are uh you know getting involved yeah totally all right well um yeah i guess uh just pitch your organization one more time man and let's uh let's keep moving yeah absolutely so uh it's called no odny um we are going to be walking from new york city to buffalo um we're going to be doing um some uh direct action and stuff like that up in albany um you know on uh july 10th and 11th uh, we're really going to be targeting governor cuomo and then over the rest of the month we're going to be walking to buffalo so people should check us out we're at no odny campaign dot org um and you can find us on social media at no ODNY campaign on twitter instagram facebook um check us out we definitely need volunteers uh, we got a gofundme going right now that we're five thousand dollars away from our goal so anybody that can just uh you know give uh you know even five ten dollars that just goes so fucking far on this type of grassroots work and i mean you know i'm gonna be walking 500 miles talking to people about this and really just trying to get the governor to do what he fucking said he was going to do in 2018 you know we've had so many thousands of people die since then 
it's time that he fucking makes that right. It's time that he actually takes a stand. It's time that he has some balls on this issue and, you know, save some lives. So, you know, if people want to join us, you know, if you can uh, check us out on our website. You can come walk with us for a bit. You can donate money. You can come to one of our press conferences. We're doing Narcan trainings um, in cities all across the state while we're going through the month of July. So definitely check us out. Give money if you can. Volunteer your time. Um, and you know, every little bit goes so fucking far and it's time that we actually just stop this fucking overdose epidemic and actually get, uh, you know, people that health, uh, the healthcare that they need, the treatment that they need and try and keep people alive. All right. Well, I'm walking nice. here. That's a New York yeah. way to <laughs> walk in. Yeah. I'm going to fucking Buffalo. <laughs> yell it at Cuomo the whole time. And then he'll yeah. hear it. Getting the entire time. Just, uh, just gonna have a megaphone just screaming <laughs> at the bastard. Hell yeah. All right. Well, thanks, man. And I'll link all that stuff in the show notes. So please. No, thank you so money. much, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah thank you for the work you're doing, man. No, Good luck thank you guys. Cool. No. Well, I actually kind of, uh, kind of am, but un- I- I'm, I'm not at liberty to disclose um, my things about my time in the drug game and in organized crime. You're uh, dealing kratom in the seventies. Yeah. <laughs> there's security. There's, there's people to be, that would be put at risk. If I talk about my uh, experience. There, is, Anders oh. Lee lived an entire like Scarface esque yeah. life in Minneapolis. <laughs> you know, there's a bunch of right wingers who make up stories like that about themselves. <laughs> that they were like about like drug. I know they do that with military service. No, no, with military stuff. Like they have this alternate universe where they were like a CIA agent or some <laughs> shit. All right, Cole James Cash, welcome to the show. <laughs> I'm serious. We're redoing it. What's your show called, Cole James Cash? It's called the Cole James Cash Show, and you can reach it by patreon.com slash Cole James Cash. I promise no more detours, but you guys are the only people in my life I can talk to this about that besides my wife. Yeah, off mic, motherfucker. Not on the mic. <laughs> people, you motherfucking people live to make me edit shit out of this show, I swear to God. We, we do, man. We feel comfortable with you, you know? Well, that's good that I got out my all of my revelations about my time in the drug game. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, my experience with organized crime, because, you know, there's still people who cannot come after me. So. Yeah. Uh, but we're honored to they, have they a... They call him El Payaso. <laughs> El Blanco Muchacho. Uh, <laughs> the Kratom Ghost. Right. <laughs> oh, guys, man. <laughs> All right. So in the individuals, now we can, we're restarting the show now, right? Okay. <laughs> for, the, for the individuals that I was around that sold dope, okay? Uh, uh-huh. um, it's, it's cocaine that attracts everybody. Mm. Um, it definitely attracts everyone. It's, it's, when they talk about, you know, high class, you know, spots in the hood or high class people coming to the hood. The thing is, what's different about today is that it's so gentrified. You can't say, oh, this white person is, you know, from not from here because we already know that. But there's so many of them now. It's not out of place to see a nice ass car in the hood. But at the time that a family member of mine was dealing, um, yeah, it would be it would be everybody um, when it comes to like weed. Um, you definitely are attracting a certain clientele. Um, usually a lot of slacker ass motherfuckers. Sometimes you get cats that seem like they're on one. Um, but when it comes to Coke, it's definitely a higher class of individual by judging by those standards. And you definitely get more people who 
um, you'll get definitely more like escorts slash, you know, where the escorts models are just regular level prostitutes wanting to throw favors for it. Um, you definitely, you definitely, yeah, but you, yeah, you definitely see just everyone. It's not, it's not even particular, but the problem is too, is that it's expensive, you know, it's expensive. So it's, it's, the thing is because cocaine is not affordable, you're going to have clientele that's, you know, always that might try to price you down or, you know, try to re, you know, renegotiate stuff that happens all the time. Mm. Even, even with folks that have like a lot of money, I'd see, you know, this particular fan member, he'd have certain complaints and, you know, he he basically would be like, yeah, some, he's like, sometimes the richest clients are the fucking cheapest, you know, um, he'd be, he definitely whined about that. But yeah, with, with Coke, you definitely see a, a variety. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's different from when this particular family member was dealing because of the gentrification thing that I told you about and the fact that yeah. people text, text and all that, you know, by the time, um, by the time Jamil got locked up, let's see, like he got locked up like in 09. So like texting and smartphones were just becoming a thing. Um, and he didn't really like communicating like that. But today it's different. You guys got guys on IG stunting, practically offering their fucking clientele on IG and then stunning afterwards. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you, I definitely saw a lot of everybody and everybody's different. You never know what people you do. You do. Let me say this. You do see people go from looking regular to like three, four months later, looking like a completely different person. Yeah. Um, a lot of times, um, because coke is so expensive they'll just switch up to meth um like because meth is a lot cheaper and i guess the high lasts longer i've never done meth um but but that's just my 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 observation but yeah you'll definitely see people in their transformation and for me it was always it was always like wild for me to see that like yo this is what it can do to you you know it's like it's like it's like jake you know you see him a few months later, he's still looking the same. Like, yo, the drugs don't even touch that man. He's immortal, man. You know? Oh, man. Sometimes I do it backwards. The first time you see me, I'm like, Shit. <laughs> No, but I mean, I've seen friends like in, uh, I keep saying this, but in the service industry and just in like the, I don't know, in the circles I run in. And a lot of this is through like work. It's work based. It's not just fucking being a comedian and shit like that. Some of it's from being a comedian, but like, I've seen people like lose themselves to coke, and it's really addictive. And you can, you know, start on it and end up smoking crack and shit like that. And like, it's uh, it's it's fuck. I don't know. It's something more insidious, I think, than it's portrayed as. Sometimes it's just like a party drug or something like that. Because like, it might start off as a party drug, you know, but after months and months and months of doing it, it's like you're doing it at home alone. I had a pretty bad problem with it. Where I was just doing it alone, and it was not a fucking party. <laughs> um, and it stops what about when you when you turn on that Final Fantasy VII remake. Is it a party then? Well, then it's a briefly a party, yes. But then <laughs> it becomes too hard to slot all the materia and everything. <laughs> I'm thinking about it. I'm like, man, I wish I could break up that materia and with a credit card, <laughs> snort it up my nose. <laughs> The holy materia that that Aerith has in her headband. Um, <laughs> no, uh, no, it's fucked up. I mean, it's, it's it's really addictive. So what it does is like you know it just gives you diminishing returns after a while, and that's how you end up just turning into a fucking zombie or whatever. Um, 
The other thing I wanted to ask you about is, uh, sure. do you know anything about fentanyl? Because people have been, I don't think people don't understand what the use of it is. People keep asking. I've been talking to people about this in New York, and they're going like, why is it cut with fentanyl? Fentanyl's like expensive. It's another drug. It's a downer. It's an opiate. Why would it be cut with that, right? And I think that like, if people don't understand that fentanyl is what you use to step on it with, because it used to be stepped on with like baby laxative and like you know fucking baking soda or whatever but because it's an opioid it pairs well with it and it turns into like a form of speedball right isn't that what the fuck is going on i mean what do you do you know anything about well, this here here's what i'll say about fentanyl that came on the scene when i wasn't around niggas dealing dope um but from the few the i have the very i don't have too many connections in the street like that when it comes to drug sales um mostly because i'm a drug addict and i try to stay away from that kind of thing um, but the issue with fentanyl is that when, you know, like prescription pills, right? Prescription pills became a lot harder to get, especially in the second half of the, the, the 2010s, you know? Um, and so they started cutting it in, cutting in stuff with stuff that's easier to get. Fentanyl apparently is easier to get, um, because they can import it and they can import it in like massive amounts. The problem is, is that guys are not cutting it properly. It's way stronger than it's supposed to be, or they're just being careless with it. And, and it, and it's causing deaths. And so it's, it's, you know, the, it's, it's funny because the, the opiate curbing, the opiates in America was supposed to like help people, you know, and then all it did was make it so that, okay, well, we're just going to cut these pills either with, you know, whatever the fuck or, or fentanyl. I, I definitely, I've seen where someone cut pills with fentanyl because when I was working at the homeless shelter, somebody brought it to me actually. Um, and the pills are like very, like they're not solid. Like let's say it's supposed to be a Vicodin and Norco 10 or whatever. They're not solid. They break apart like super easy. Um, Cause, and like I said, like I had to learn this in a, in a thing in my, in my other job at the homeless shelter um, about how to spot that type of stuff. But yeah, basically People not understanding how strong it is. Dealers not giving a fuck how strong it is. And that's how you end up with deaths like, you know, um, I don't know. Um, or like Shock G apparently died from an overdose of fentanyl and meth. Um, it's, it's, it's how you get situations like that because fentanyl is, it's, it's not like when you're cutting heroin and let's say if it was China white or whatever, you knew it was strong. You knew you had to, you know, take care of it. But these guys are not operating like that. You know, they're not operating like that. These guys are just cutting it however they're going to cut it. And whatever happens on the street is what happens. Yeah. Mm. No, I hope I explained that. Like, that, yeah. was, that was the last dope, dope dealer that I asked us about almost a year ago. This is what that's what he told me, you yeah. know, what's and that like it presents an issue. What's like the strangest thing you've ever heard uh, being coke being cut with? Oh, God. Um <laughs> Shit, there, there, there was, there was somebody who, um, oh man, this was a girl too. Um, shit, my wife, my wife came here. Okay, Wife's you can't <laughs> mention other women. No, I can mention other women. Okay. Shit, my wife checks out other women. It's not that. It's, it's. I don't like to go into stories of this detail. She can hear it. She this can't. Is a <clears throat> no, basically, um, there was a, there was an Asian girl that I was messing with, and like she legit would like. She 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 had to have a specific brand of like Ajax, you know, to 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 put that in. And then later that they, later it became, I forgot she she like some third party Walmart brand she oh started God. cutting it with. And she was like, 
I don't know. They're saying it's like blah blah blah. I'm like, who is who is they? Like that could be dangerous. And I was just like, and then you know, as a as a as we were do our thing, this is in 2013. As we do our thing or whatever, I was just like, you know, I I, I literally would like not want to sleep over there because I was afraid that she could you know have a heart attack or whatever. Um, oh, so she was doing it too. Yeah, well, she I wasn't I had only done coke once and it was just regular coke, but she was no, I mean, like in, she was selling it and doing no, no, she was only was. doing it, she was only doing it. You oh, know? okay, she was only doing it. But her the thing is, is that she had a quite a supply because her brother was her brother was slanging. I mean, that dude, he had what the what the youngsters say the trap jumping out in Oakland. He was a Cambodian cat, I knew I absolutely knew him, and that's how she would get like hella stuff, you know. And she was clearly addicted. And then and one time when I did see her brother, I used to ask him, like, you know what's going on with so-and-so? He's like, ain't nothing I can do about that, you know? He was at a crossroads between cutting her off, knowing what he's giving her, or continuing to give it to her, knowing what's happening. Eventually, Wait. she would go to rehab, but yeah, that was that was, a, that was a dicey situation. I had to stop sleeping with her. Wait, so he was cutting it with Ajax? He, was, he, was, he basically showed her how to do it, yeah. Like so she was doing it on purpose you. for her own use. <laughs> yeah. She just I mean, wanted a really clean nose. I mean, look, man, like, I I understood his dilemma because the fact that, like, it's his sister, you know? It's his sister, and that if she goes and sees someone else, he didn't know what they would be giving her because she was so desperate, you know? So eventually she would go to rehab, but that was that was one of the most volatile situations that I'd ever been in as far as I've sleeping s- with somebody. I'm so like, I've, I've, I've never slept with, I, to my knowledge, I've never on purpose slept with somebody who was with somebody or anything like that. That's not my thing. But definitely somebody who was flirting with death. <laughs> yeah, I'm so confused though. Like, what do you mean? Always worried about if she gets it, if she gets it from somewhere else, she might get coke that isn't cut with ajax that sounds that sounds worse i mean that was his logic so i, I like i can i'm just a messenger man yeah fair that enough. was that was that was a situation man like like I, I went to her house like two or three times and i just remember not wanting to come back you know she's a she's a good person and stuff too but god hell no no she would i think she would eventually get clean but i um last time i checked her facebook she was talking about she was doing bad or whatever so I don't even want to get near that. And the hair thing too is that since I've been in Canada, she absolutely contacted me, and I absolutely had to tell her, like, "Hey, look, I'm a married guy, and you know, I'm living she a that different green card. life." Huh? She wanted that Canadian green card. I mean, it's 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 a lot of it's it's it, more, more people than you think would kill to get I up bet. here, as far as yeah. that goes, especially looking at medical costs and shit like yeah. that that are up here. But yeah, that was a strange situation that that I was in, and I was also doing. You know, you got to be like. Why were you even coming around this and that? Because she had hella, hella fucking pills. Like, um, she had hella Norcos, and I was addicted to them at the time. I was addicted to heroin at the time. So she always had the hookup on that for, like, super cheap. So, you know, like, I don't know. I, I just had to do what I had to do <laughs> to get the drug uh, of my choice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about, like, how different dealers sort of interact with each other. Like, you mentioned that it's very common to be armed. Um, is if there if there's a dispute, is violence still like a last resort, or do they <laughs> sort of uh, have like no seriously like do they have like do they convene and try to like work things out uh, ahead of time? 
um, so that it doesn't come to that? Or like, what is what is the relationship between like between um, businesses really like? Well, the, the best way I could answer this is who's dealing for who and what's going on in prison. And, and I'm so serious about this. Mm-hmm. If I'm if I'm dealing on behalf of Nuestra Familia or my connect is connected to somebody who's, you know, giving me the hookup through, say, NF or Northern Structure, then, you know, people aren't going to just come at me just for the sake of it. Anybody who's coming at me has got their own, you know, got their own group of folks that are backing them. A lot of a lot of rules are made through prison. Um, like if it's if it's you know, Coke is a type of game to where you have to know somebody, and that somebody has to know somebody else. I think I can only speak for where where I'm from. Like everybody's de- everybody who's dealing, everybody who's middleman is usually connected to somebody who's either either through prison or anything else. What what's funny too is like people will talk about, oh yeah, I was getting connect straight through the cartel, like. You can only do that if somebody from somebody over here on this side is giving the okay for that. You know, um, everybody everybody who deals is tied to or you know is tied to somebody. And you know, if somebody wants to make a move on somebody else, that means that they have the backing to do so. Um, if I'm let's say I'm de- let's say I'm dealing on behalf of you know I could be dealing on behalf of M A. You know, let's say I'm, I'm fucking with the Mexican mafia, or whatever. You know, or let's say I'm I'm black. I'm I'm one of these brothers, right? And my connect is Latino, but there's still somebody. You know, there's still somebody that answers that 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 Latin person answers to, who's a middleman, who says, okay, I can let these niggas deal. There's no such thing as really. I have a straight connect to the cartel unless you are that high up. Cartels deal with everybody. They don't have a particular bias on who they deal with. They don't, but they also don't operate unless it's absolutely necessary stateside. Like they're not into exporting their violence because that's bad for business but when you're talking about like let's say i'm just a regular dealer okay and the guy that's backing me is doesn't have a you know super rep like that even though his you know he's dealing on behalf of somebody else that's got power in prison if i'm just a low-level dealer somebody runs up on me someone may feel like you know what i'm not going to risk my whole business going after that we're going to chalk that as a loss so a lot of things really come down to who's backing them how hard is it going to be and is the aftermath going to get me or my people in trouble afterwards? Um, so, you know, in this type of game, yeah, it's, it's shoot first, yes. But a decision is definitely made if you're going to run up in somebody's spot. Despite what these rappers and stuff glorify, running off on a plug is one of the most dangerous things you can do. Um, you, you can't run forever, and you will get caught up. You know, you will get caught up. Sometimes you'll see situations where, okay, that person ran off, but we know that they have the money and they can get that money. So this time we want double up front and you're going to pay for that. In some situations, you can definitely not get a pass, but you're going to pay for that. But in most situations, when you run up in somebody's spot and you use brute force, somebody's usually going to meet you right back for one, for, uh, for uh, out of protection and also the necessity of keeping up the fact that you don't want it to be known that your people can be killed or just ran up on it and then just and just wiped out like that. That's why I was trying to sell you guys like Coke is the big boy game because anything passing through certain areas and certain hoods in California, you can't just deal, you know, so that's somebody's yeah. territory. Somebody's remember I talked to you, Jake, about the street taxes yeah. and how like when you're using somebody's name or somebody's product, you have to pay for that. And that's the sort of the point I was making to Felix Biederman when I talked to him. It's like, yo, man, like. Everybody, everywhere in America, it's a territory. 
You know, I can't, let's say, uh, you know, where, where, Andrews, where are you at? Are you in Brooklyn? Uh, I live in D.C. Right now oh. I'm in my girlfriend's uh, dad's closet in Harlem. But That's my territory. That's where I deal is in Andrews' yeah. girlfriend's dad's yeah. closet. Well, and I'll, fi- is, I'll find you. Yeah, I, I know you're hiding in the closet from your girlfriend's dad, but <laughs> um, from from Harlem, from Harlem, you know, to, to 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 Harlem all the way to Uptown, you know what I'm saying? Down at down over to Fifth Avenue, that's someone's territory. Somebody's yeah. running that section. So you, in order to deal in those sections, you have to go through someone else. So this is what I mean by. So it's not like a driving for DoorDash or something. I can't go just sign up and then go. I'm ready to take some yeah. orders. Yeah, because everybody's got territory. So let's say Anders here. He's like, I wants to get in a dope game. He's cool with somebody. Some white boy is cool with some white boy who's running shit for fucking for for the Bloods and is like, all right, we gonna let this white boy do what he do. Well, let's and then say they meet Andrew, me and. Uh, decide otherwise <laughs> i mean like believe it or not i, I know it's gonna sound crazy but mo a lot of drug dealers you know but backbiting and going back on deals is not really the best idea because once you get that reputation it's bad for business and it's mm. a bad look not keeping your word is a bad look because the cartel certainly keeps theirs i i, I will i will right. say that like they you know, they, 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 there's a reason why the niggas is billionaires, man. On top of the fact that they have a government that's, you know, is the way it is and in the United States being the way that they are. But regardless of anything, they keep their word and they do they do solid business. So, um, you know, if you have a if you have a middleman who's, you know, deciding like, you know what, Anders is the easy is the easy lick. So I'm going to rob him instead. Then people get nervous. They, they they get nervous. They're like, okay, you know, if you get him like that, how do we know he's gonna do us like that? Right. So be, being that way is actually not the best way to be. But let's say if you wanted to get into business and this and that, that you know, you could get in and start slanging if you got a clientele. But it doesn't mean that they're gonna jump in and protect you if somebody wants to run up on you. Because at the end of the day, Anders is not carrying the type of weight and the type of you know the type of backing that says that we need to do this and, and depending on how much you were bringing into where it'd be worth trying to protect you from somebody trying to move in on your spot. So it's, 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 I would say this drugs is the ultimate entrepreneur startup, man. Oh. And once you get into the Coke game, it's, it's the IPO, you know, it's the IPO. It's like, okay, we going public now, you know? And, 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 and it's, it's really at that level to where it's it's all bets are off anything can happen you know your man your man could come through and, and steal your shit the girl you fucking with you you know you get set up that's what happened to pop smoke and they got set up i can't you know, just do like set a, up and that was that i can't just do like what a, was that i can't do like a we work kind of i just want to try it out for a week no mexicans on we work man we already know. <laughs> um i i, I say so this because all the black people hummus. who got like harassed at we work because they were in their offices that they paid for <laughs> <laughs> and white folks are like, what are you niggas doing here? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, mean, like, yeah. Yeah. I will say with like, this is with weed. It is sort of lucrative, still a little, not that dangerous, but maybe a little dangerous, but it is lucrative if you're like a white dude who already is like a delivery guy and you got like the Grubhub bag or whatever uh, to get like a weed delivery yeah. job. I see it's because, you know, you're less likely to get stopped and searched. I thought about um, that when I was doing that work. I was like, I could switch so easily to just deliver yeah. drugs and making way more money. Right. 
But um, I also did have of- people frequently ask me though, "Hey, is that full of drugs?" <laughs> 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 like, no, it's Chinese food. <laughs> Leave me alone. Hey, look at that Puerto Rican over there. My love song. <laughs> yeah. My first job was at a video store, and my first shift, someone this woman asked me for weed, as if like we sold weed at the video store. <laughs> um, but so this is a, like a territory is a big part of this, and how long does that those territory? Territorial establishments go back. It's like in, over the course of generations, or is it constantly in flux? You, so you're, you're asking me about how territories maintain? Yeah. Um, again, in California, everything revolves around prison. So, um, so for for if you want to know the the god honest truth, and I'm so serious, like a lot of territories were sta- staked out in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and that's the way they are now. Mm. You know. Um, it would take a it would take a generational shift in prison because the reality is this man is that the reason why everything revolves around prison is because in this game you you're going to end up there at some point. Mm. So that's that's just the way that's just the way things are maneuvered. Um, with black people, it's a, black folks. It's a little different, you know. It's 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 a little different. Black folks are a little bit more independent with the dope game because um, because you understand like the the you know. The Mexicans are very regimented, be they Norteños or Sudanos. They're very regimented in how they operate, whereas black folks were not as united. So it just depends on which hood you beware. But chances are, some like I said, let's say I'm from East Oakland. If I'm out in the murders out in the 20s out near Fruitville where I'm from, you know, I can tell you there's somebody who's, you know, in charge of certain certain blocks or can hold a bunch of blocks, you know. Uh, I guess the best way I can tell, tell you is that Running up on Mexican territory is always a bad fucking deal because they're going to retaliate one way or another. Because, like I said, their shit is like a military. It's regimented. Whereas with black folks, like I said, we're not as, you know, we're not as team oriented. <laughs> you know, we're going to do we, we're going to do what the fuck we going to do. So but but like I said, it, it depends on the ra- the race, race, well, race. Mm-hmm. And then in California, I'm serious. It depends on race and it depends on, on where, where you're at. Anything south south of Bakersfield, <coughs> anything south of Bakersfield, you're looking at Mexican mafia. You're looking at MA having quite a bit of control. Even if you're in some shithole like Barstow, somebody is enforcing something out there, and it really tells you how much of a horrible effect the prison industrial complex has had on uh, has had on our people, blacks and Latinos. To where I'm literally telling you that, yeah. Prison is where everything is decided. Where right. you know, like the, the fact that it's come to that. And the fact that there's real world consequences for stuff to happen, some dumb beef some cellmate has with somebody else in prison, like the fact that that can spill outside tells you how bad that prison industrial complex is for people of color. Right. And that's it. So like even short of like full legalization, which, of course, I think we probably all want, even short of that, if they were to just, you know, decarcerate a huge chunk of the prison population and do prison reform, like what impact do you think that would have on on the game well what would happen is if you want to know the truth what would happen is a lot of guys would lose their pool a lot mm-hmm. because if you're able to just buy fucking coke at the corner store then there's there's no need to have these heightened protections for it outside of that um take and and the thing is is it would it would affect business south of the border because having to connect you know or like i said mexicans run the, the dope game like that like you know, a lot of people get sort of confused because they see something like like Narcos and then they forget there's a Narcos Mexico that pretty much details how the niggas took the game over. 
uh, you know, minus some CIA stuff that they don't include. Um, but with that said, it's like when you take away the mystique, look at the mystique of weed, you know, like now now these white dudes are selling it the same way the brothers did where they're naming it. and It's a product. It's like this is my product. This is the super ultimate daddy purple cushion, you know, like <laughs> it's it's how they market it, you know. Now, with cocaine, it'd be the same thing. You take away the, the mystique, a lot of guys would lose a lot of power. There'd be a lot of money lost among criminal organizations because, I mean, you know, you got guys that have maintained territory and maintained power in prison for years because of their excellent coke, um, their knowledge on how to move it, and the fact that they've maintained great connects because of it and their ability to have guys moving on the street. If I can just open up some LLC and sell it out of a fucking you know, controlled substance, whatever in, 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 in Cali, it would put a huge dent in a lot of people's uh, power and money. Legalization, people that being against legalization, I, I would really learn when I follow big Meech from BMF, if you're familiar with him. And when he talked about, I can't talk. He literally said, I'd rather do the years and talk about the people I was dealing with and the types of individuals who are high up that I had to deal with. You know, and everybody who's deep in that code game always says that there's so much to it that legalization is just not going to happen without, you know, a complete structural change within our justice system. You know, yeah, um, well, there's I mean, a lot of money. There's a lot of money in keeping coke legal, legal and the ability to prosecute it the way that they do. Yeah. I mean, it's like a black right. market situation, except like with yeah. with prohibition, like the, you know, the the booze kind of won. Like they had to just de- to fucking take everything apart. And then reorient towards this other shit and eventually turned into a situation where, you know, yeah, now you've got like the whole prison industrial complex sort of like fueled by this. So, oh, yeah. And they do it on purpose, too. Yeah. Because, because, but see, like this, Jake, not to cut you off, but black folks, we don't have no planes. We don't got no fucking shipping companies. Like, we're not bringing this stuff in. You know, we're not bringing this stuff in. So it's like, how the fuck did it get here like it did? It can only get here like it does unless the United States allows it to to, to a great degree. Uh, on one hand, as you know, it could say no to drugs, but say yes to um, the contras, uh, you know, right. and, and and say yes to what's going on in El Salvador. Jake, I can't get over your background. There's nowhere in Brooklyn where the sky looks like that. I'm not in Brooklyn. I'm on Fire Island right now. <laughs> get the fuck out of here, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm in the deck of a fucking Airbnb. Anders, hold on. If you need to answer, why are you in your girlfriend's closet? (laughs) My girlfriend's dad's closet. Girlfriend's dad's closet. It's like an R. You remember the R. Kelly song? That's uh... I do. I do. I I, you know I watched that with my wife the other day, and you understand she's the First Nations Canadian. She doesn't know shit about it, (laughs) and explaining to her why trapped in the closet was a thing back in oh five oh six. It's like it's hard. Yeah, you know, it's hard. Because um, I, I was trying to explain to her, like, look, R. Kelly's never going away. He's too good. His work is too genius. But this is not one of his, you know. But, yeah, you are trapped in the closet. So that means you're either holding some sort of gay relationship with a midget or you got a chubby white girl pregnant. <laughs> I forgot about um, the midget in that film. Now, seeing as, how, seeing as how you're not you're not a brother like me who likes some sloppy white Megan McCain broads, I know, I know. I'm going to have to rule that out. So why are you in the closet? Um, it's uh, I I hate to disappoint everyone by not having a more interesting answer, but it's audio purposes. Okay. So we don't hear the uh, he is watching uh, Brazil, Venezuela. They're they're oh, he's watching uh, Copa America. Yeah, 
Dad, I need so to use the booth. Can I call you Dad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, all uh, those but, tournaments are delayed because we're delayed because of COVID. Because the Euro 2020 is happening right now, and that shit's a year old. So, yeah, but yeah. Sorry to cut you off. I just, you know, no, that's all right. No. I did. Yeah, it's something just to add to the legalization point. It's like I've been watching um, Murder Mountain uh, on Netflix about Humboldt County and how like legalization has really destroyed a lot of people's lives. So we're like small scale growers. And just like we talk about, you know, with the fossil fuel industry, making sure there's a just transition for fossil fuel workers and like miners and stuff, we got to do the same thing with, with legalization. Like if we're going to fully legalize everything, we have to make sure people have income, you know, um, who are, I'm not so worried about the huge, the big cartels. Well, let's imagine that to round this out. How do we do that? How do we, yeah, you got people that have developed skills, uh, good, good red-blooded Americans who have, you know, learned how to work, and uh, the, they're entrepreneurs like Andrew Yang likes, right? And uh, their industry is going to become out, uh, you know, it's going to fall apart because of legalization. So how do we? What does a guy who used to be the muscle do for a job now? Where do we put him? Right? Where does a guy who used to count all the shit and uh, weigh everything? You know, where do we what put them? People who used to cut it with fent. What do they do? What are the cut? The cut with the fentanyl cutting guy. He can now work <laughs> in like, I don't know. Um, or my boy who's the Ajax cutting guy. <laughs> yeah, he can clean stuff. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think. Let me let me just say this. There's a great deal of management in this industry. We need that. They can become PMCs. Yeah. They get yelled out. Yeah, Twitter. like like literally when I described the takeover, right? You do a takeover, a hostile takeover, when companies are vulnerable and they look like there's an opening. But in the dope game, it's hostile takeover is we clapping everybody and taking the shit. These guys are everything that, that you know, this family member, you know, I'll just let you know, it's my brother. Everything that, you know, he was doing is what you would want out of somebody who wants to be an entrepreneur startup who started up with nothing. And all a all all consignment on the quote unquote a brick, all that is is the, the the type of you know public loans that these guys are are lobbying for if they don't have the money to come up with it themselves. So all these guys have the skills financially to try to get a startup and try to get you know aggressively aggressively going as these capitalists want. The problem is is that they're people of color. You know, they're people of color, so it's like it's not viewed in the same way. You know, those these yeah. guys who have had a, the great dope empires, like, yo, that was excellent business acumen. You know, right down when you talk about the management, the marketing, like you said, the muscle, everything, that's great business acumen. So, you know, when you talk about legalization, it's literally, you know, offering offering people just opportunities. People do, do sell dope because it's an opportunity, mm-hmm. and it's an opportunity to make what you would make in two weeks working at McDonald's, you can make that, you know, in a couple hours selling dope. But to get to that level, you know, it's a lot of bloodshed and a willingness to do what's necessary. Legalization takes away the need for that bloodshed. And, you know, like I said, there's a lot of money in keeping people of color, fucking each other up, keeping us divided. The black and Mexican divide, I can tell you right now, Jake, is heavily tied to the drug game in prison. I can, I'm not I can feel the black and Mexican divide present in this podcast right now. So hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh, absolutely. You no, know, absolutely. But yeah, no, no, no. That's, that's, it, Jake, like I said, it's all tied to a lot of shit in prison. 
if, if those guys in prison lost the power that they had through legalization, certain tensions would be would die down. Uh, and the black and Mexican beef, which I was there for in Southgate, um, out in L.A., all of that was tied to drug territory. Yes, there's already hidden anti-black bias in certain aspects of the Mexican community. We've talked about that. And we all do our best to combat that, you know, especially you know, Spanish speakers like me who are black. We do our best to combat that. But a lot of that is tied to the drug game and the dope game and moving in on territory when they feel it's necessary. A lot of that shit would be very much, you know, stifled through legalization. I can't speak on any upper level D.C. shit because I ain't smart enough for any of that shit. But absolutely, you know, um, that's the best answer I can give. I just want to say this, too. Like, Jake, I have an education in this type of stuff and it's not lucrative. (laughs) <laughs> so I appreciate you come, you bringing me on because there's nobody really on the left who does this podcast shit, podcast podcast shit for our side of the left that really like gives a shit about this kind of stuff. So I appreciate you bringing me on for this because in this regard, I definitely am an expert to that extent. Yeah, for sure. No, you're a valuable resource, man. I appreciate <laughs> it. I appreciate you telling us about it. And uh, and uh, yeah, no, believe me, you're the first person i thought of and uh not because you're <laughs> not because you're the first person i thought of like who i know who fucking knows about dealing drugs and shit but because you are the first person i thought of who is in the podcasting game that does because everybody else is like i'm playing a computer game with my friends right now and fucking all that <laughs> bullshit and you know from a goddamn Let me tell you something, Jake. So. i was watching the nba playoffs okay shouting at other niggas and degrading other black people for liking a certain team <laughs> you know that's a, that's that's the level that i'm operating at okay and yeah i got plenty of video games but yeah like i you know i i what was like but i was having a light skin dark skin war with somebody the other day like that's the type <laughs> of immature level i'm operating at but as you saw me tell sam cedar literally on majority report yeah real trap niggas get him on the show <laughs> <laughs> yeah for you sure know? yeah well no i, I try to stand that live I fucking try to support that because, you know, half of this fucking world is like, you know, how do I put it in a way that's not as corny as saying book smarts, and, book smarts and street smarts or whatever, but like lived experience, that's a fucking even worse way to put it. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I do. Some of this stuff is academic and some of it is like socialism literally occurred to me because I am broke and I, you know, I'm from a poor family and shit. And then uh, that half of the equation, you know. It's part of this. We need somebody yeah. to actually tell us how this shit works, because otherwise we're just going off of some bullshit we read in a book, which is co- yeah. is, is sifted and, and uh, sorted through like you know a perspective that is you know looking on from on high and things like that. And uh, yeah, no, I agree, man. But, I, I'll say this: you you got listeners who have dealt with what I'm dealing with, and I just you know the best way I could put it is that this is the type of game where it can't be taught to you. And you can't learn it too late. Like Carlitos Way put it perfectly. Like it's not something that you just people are just going to tell you because they don't think you're a cop or a fed. You know, being mentored in this kind of thing is it's, it's it's a rare thing. You have to find out on your own. And it's like I said, you can't learn it too late. You know, um, I'm not built to sell drugs. I'm not built to just clap somebody at a no moment's notice. I, I don't have I don't have it in me to be that way. But that's what it takes if you're going to operate at the cocaine level. You have to be ready for whatever and do whatever. And like I said, it really tells you how sick the prison industrial complex is where this type of lifestyle is legitimately promoted. 
and and he gives a continuance when somebody gets locked up they get even more powerful and that's on purpose yeah all right man well i gotta wrap up because i gotta get to another segment here but i appreciate you yeah, coming you on do. and please plug everything you got man yeah. patreon.com slash cold james cash show and um i went into the origins of woke on um um i not the origin i did a, a wrote a small short segment for means tv um i i write i i actually am a, I'm a contributor there now um doing um um like segments like i can write my own segments i took a script writing class in college and nice. it's not helping me <laughs> but yeah like i um, i'm doing that on means tv in preparation for my show but right now it's that and of course um you can go to my soundcloud patreon i mean soundcloud.com slash gnn channel 10 where I'm gonna have music up and I'm gonna be releasing more house music and more like stuff in the footwork slash juke genre. But patreon.com slash Cole James Cash Show, because I'm the only, literally the only fucking podcaster right now that's focused on hood shit or what happens when, you know, I got guys that have been locked up, been in solitary to come on my show. You know, I got leftists that have no notable actions other than they participate in voting, it don't matter. Jake, like I always say, they say it's working class, but why you have to have so much clout to get on some of these shows, man? So, you know, <laughs> you don't have to do you don't have to do that with me, and you don't have to do that with Jake because he invited my ass on the show. So, you know, he don't give a fuck about reputation. All these fucking um, people are working class in the you know, <laughs> unless you're talking in the broad sense in which we're all working class. But uh, yeah, man, I'm a I'm I'm a I'm a hood I'm, I'm a Oakland nigga who just happened to make it to Canada, man. You know, I, I made it to freedom, man. I made it to freedom, baby. Nice. So, Where yeah, in Canada, thank, I am in uh, Sudbury, Ontario, and um, oh, most Canadians hate on it, and I understand why because it's a shitty small town. But I love it because it's here with my wife. So, you know, and, and yeah, like I uh, like I said, that's all I got to plug is my Patreon. Your fans, some of the fans already kind of know who I am, but these are the types of educational seminars I give. No, this shit's cool, man. All right, well, fuck. That's been uh, Cole James Cash, everyone. Thank you for coming and speaking Thank to you. the, uh, you know, the high school cafeteria auditorium of yeah. children about drugs and what not to do. Don't go down this road. Don't go down this road. All right, I'm behind you. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. All right, thanks man. For on. We'll see you around. All right, guys. Thanks. For